Hebrews chapter number 6. We'll begin reading in verse number 1. The Bible says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit. The title of my sermon is derived from verse number 2 where the Bible says, Of the doctrine of baptisms. The title of the sermon this morning is The Doctrine of Baptisms. The Doctrine of Baptisms. Now, this past Wednesday when we were going through Hebrews chapter number 6, you know, I made an allusion to, I just made a side, a side comment if you will, to this phrase, how it actually says the doctrine of baptisms and not the doctrine of baptism. Now, everyone here must is most likely, I would say, familiar with the fact that there are multiple baptisms in the Bible. Now, I would say that you probably are aware of that. And what I'm going to be preaching this morning is the doctrine of baptisms plural. I'm going to be going through the different baptisms in the Bible. Now, there are, you know, people will kind of split hairs on some of these, but I'm going to be trying to give you this morning a comprehensive understanding of the doctrine of baptisms, plural, in the Bible. I want you to go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter number 3. Matthew chapter number 3. What provoked me to preach specifically on this subject and to do it so quickly is the fact that Hebrews chapter number 6, the, the context and the purpose of that statement is to lay out that which is simple in the Bible, the basics of what babes in Christ should already know. And my responsibility, of course, is to make sure that I feed you the Bible, is that, that you understand the Bible. So if I'm going to be teaching you and I am responsible and accountable for making sure that you know and understand the Bible, obviously I need to begin with the basics. And I've never preached a full sermon on the doctrine of baptisms, on the fact that there are plural uh, uh, baptisms in the Bible. I want to point out to you something here early on as well. Notice that it says the doctrine, singular, of baptisms, plural. So it is a doctrine in which how all of these baptisms come together and what it actually means. And I'm going to be explaining that more so in detail at the end. Now, when we hear the word baptism, what do we always think about? When I hear the word baptism, I think of water baptism. That is the most prominent type of baptism. That's what we discuss the majority of the time today. If I just use the word baptism, that's what I'm going to be referring to. That's what you would be referring to. And that's because 99% of the time in the Bible, when the Bible says baptism, that's what it is also referring to. Now, also here in the introduction portion, this is super, super important. You have to understand this. The definition of the word baptism. What does the word baptism mean? What does it mean for someone to be baptized? The word baptism or baptize is a transliteration from Greek. It is not an English word, right? Just like the word taco, that is a Spanish word that's carried directly into English, right? Well, the word baptism or baptize is not of English origin and it was not translated from one language and then, you know, uh, put into our language in, you know, our language English, right? It is a Greek word. And it is taken and just, you know, just the, the sounds of the word and everything is just plugged straight into our language. And the Greek word is baptizo. That is the Greek word, baptizo. And the definition of that word is to immerse. And you can see that clearly from the Bible. We don't need to go back to the Greek. We can see that from the Bible itself. But it is important to know that it's a transliteration. It's not an English word. It is a transliteration from Greek. That's the same thing with the word deacon. And we can get, you know, we don't need to know Greek. We can see what the job of a deacon is and what the word deacon means also from the King James Bible. So that is super important. If you're going to understand the doctrine of baptisms, they're all going to have something in common. And the common thread is, of course, the definition of the word. What does it mean to be baptized? What does baptism mean? It means to be immersed. It means to be put completely under something. It means to be inside of something. We're going to see that a couple of different times. It means on all corners, completely surrounded, and you are inside of to dunk under or to immerse. That is what... <clears throat> The word, Michaela, give me a water, please. That is what the word baptism means. It means to be immersed. 
So here in Matthew chapter number 3, verse number 11, we're going to see a couple of different things. And this is a very strong passage for a few different reasons. Three points, quickly. I want you to hear all these things. I'm just going to give you the statements. Number one, this is when baptism, the Christian practice, is first introduced. It's first introduced in Matthew chapter number 3. And, and that is chronologically even within your Bible. This is when the doctrine, the true doctrine of the New Testament of water baptism is first introduced. Number one. Number two, we have the Lord being baptized in Matthew chapter number three. That's pretty significant. The Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is baptized in Matthew chapter number three. But also, and even more so relevant to this sermon... We see what the, there are three baptisms that are listed in Matthew chapter number 3. Matthew chapter number 3 is the prime and best place to go to to understand the plurality or the multiple baptisms that take place in the New Testament. Or just in reality, if you will. So here in Matthew chapter number 3, let's begin, let's look at verse number, let's look at verse number 7. We're just going to begin with... Um, actually, you know what? Back up to verse number 3. We're going to read quite a bit of this. Let's look at verse number 3. This is the introduction to John. John was obviously the human tool that first introduced the practice of baptism. Look at verse number 3. Matthew 3, 3. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem, and all Judea, and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, I want you to notice they were baptized in Jordan, right? You notice that? In Jordan. Confessing their sins. Verse 7, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Verse 11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. You want to greet them and help them in? But he that cometh after me is mightier than I. But he that cometh after me, I'm sorry, where was I at here? Verse number 11, right? Is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So I want to point out to you there, verse number 11, notice what you see. Three different baptisms. John first says this. He said, I indeed baptize you with water. So what do we have there? There we have a water baptism. He says, I baptize you with water. This is a water baptism. So that's baptism number one. That would be what we are most familiar with. That is the bat. When we say baptism, that's what we would be referring to, right? A water baptism. Also look at verse number 11. Notice what it says next. It says this, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. What were they, looking for steadfast jacks? No, I'm just, I'm kidding. No, yeah. uh, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. So notice what he says. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. So there, that is baptism number two. That is the baptism of the Holy Ghost. So number one, we have a water baptism. And number two, we have a Holy Ghost baptism. Look at verse number 11 again. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. This is a separate baptism. This is going to be really important. I'm going to teach in detail. This, this is extremely, I believe, uh, uh, significant because it's very simple to understand. This is a basic doctrine. I want you to keep that in mind. This is a basic doctrine. And we're going to learn things about the method of interpretation and how to interpret the Bible. And this is going to help us in other areas, and specifically the book of Hebrews, I believe, and other areas of interpreting Scripture. So verse number 11 there at the end, one more time. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with Fire. Look down now. Now I want to look at Jesus' baptism. Look at verse number 13. It says this. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, 
I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. Verse 16, And Jesus when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were open unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. So right here, of course, we see the Lord being baptized. We see the Lord Jesus Christ being baptized. This is a significant moment. Now, I want to do something very quickly, and I don't want this to become, you know, uh, too much of what the sermon is about, the substance of the sermon this morning. But I want to quickly touch on the method of baptism. And this is important because it does relate to the definition of the word. And we're going to see why that's more so important here in just a moment. The method of baptism is immersion. Now, there are three practicing methods today. There are three methods that are practiced by, you know, supposed Christianity or Christendom, whatever you want to call it. Anyone who would label themselves a Christian, there are three methods. There is only one true method that the Bible teaches. Now, you have one method which would be referred to as a, a, a fusion, it's called. A fusion is where the pouring on. So, you know, obviously the Orthodox will do this oftentimes, and even the Catholic Church will do this. A fusion is the pouring, where they'll take a baby and they'll just pour water over their head. Then you have aspersion. Aspersion is how you would pronounce it. Aspersion. That is the sprinkling. That is, of course, the sprinkling practice. Catholic Church also practices this. Then you have dipping or immersion, right? And, you know, many different churches, you know, uh, immerse. Baptists are probably the most well-known for immersing and standing up for the immersion uh, uh, practice of being the true method of baptism. But you have Presbyterians, and they'll, they'll do it anyway. It doesn't, you know, it's like Burger King. You can have it your way. They'll sprinkle you, or they'll literally, or they will baptize, or they'll dip you. They'll baptize you the right way, immerse you. See, I almost use baptize the right way, you know, to have the understanding of it actually means immersed. That's how I was using it. So they'll, they'll do it anyways. The Catholic Church sprinkles you. You know, the Orthodox Church, they specifically, they will, they will pour at times, but they're pretty big on dumping. And I don't know if you've ever, or, or dipping. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, babies that are baptized in the Orthodox Church but it's pretty serious. I mean, they'll take like, like literally like a seven-month-old baby or an eight-month-old baby when they have like this large, like decorated, you know, elaborate uh, basin. And they'll just take this seven-month-old, eight-month-old baby. And I mean, it's like almost aggressive and violent looking the way that they do it. And they'll just like, just plunge this baby like, and they do it like, 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 like it's like diving into the water. They just like dive it into the water and then they just like bring it back out. And it's fast and it's crazy looking. And that's important to understanding, you know, the, the reason why that they baptize with immersion too. Because if you're familiar with uh, in what's supposed church history, there was something that took place called the Great Schism. Now the Great Schism was the breakup of what we now know the Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox Church. And I believe it happened in like the 11th century. It was like 1052 or something like that. Somewhere around that line. That's where they broke apart and that's how we have... You notice that they look exactly the same. But there's, very, there's a couple of small differences that they have. The Roman Catholic Church wanted to sprinkle. The Greek Orthodox believed in dipping, right? And that's because they actually knew the Greek language. And they knew that the Greek word baptizo meant to immerse. That's why they still use the Texas Receptus. The Orthodox Church is the Greek Orthodox Church. They speak Greek. They use the Texas Receptus, which is the underlying uh, uh, Greek text to our New Testament in the King James Bible. So they knew that word, baptizo, meant to immerse. So that's why that split occurred. And that's why they dip today and everybody else, obviously it's, you don't baptize babies, right? But everybody else will sprinkle and pour because there's a great misunderstanding of what the word baptize means. It means to immerse. Now I'm going to prove that from Scripture. Number one here in Matthew 3.16, when Jesus is baptized, it says he went up straightway out of the water. So if he's coming up out of the water, where was he? In the water, and he's coming up straightway out of the water. So we can see there, to be baptized, when Jesus was baptized, you have to go in the water, under the water. Not only that, even from this passage you can see when being baptized, in verse number 6, John was baptizing people in the water. He wasn't sprinkling them. He wasn't pouring water on their head. It says this, and, when, and we're baptized of him in Jordan. So notice that it's in Jordan. That's the river itself. That's the body of water. 
It's not a little bit of water from it and sprinkling them. They were baptized in the Jordan River. That means that they were put under the water. Look, uh, turn to John chapter number 3, verse number 23. I want to do this quickly. John chapter number 3, verse number 23. This is helping us establish the definition of the word. John 3, 23 says this, And John, that's John the Baptist, And John also was baptizing in Anon near to Salem. Now let's see why. Because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. So notice that the reason why he chose out that specific location was why? Because there was much water. There was a lot of water there to where he had enough water to do what? To immerse, right? If you were sprinkling, if you were pouring, you wouldn't need a lot of water. I could baptize every single person in here with this cup of water if it was just sprinkling. You wouldn't need much water. The only reason why you would need much water is if that person needed, needed to be fully immersed or fully put into the water or under the water. I want you to go to Acts chapter number 8. We'll see this again. Acts chapter number 8. Now, if you haven't already, when we get back there, make sure you put a bulletin. I'm going to do so right now myself in Matthew 3 because that's going to be our text for quite a while. Uh, go to, as I said, Acts chapter number 8. We can see also that it is immersion here by Acts 8. And there's a couple other points I'll hit on slowly proving that baptism is immersion. It means to be in and under and around. Look at Acts 8 verse 36. It says this, And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. So this is a body of water, right? And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Now, of course, notice that he also is aware that it is a body of water that is necessary. I, you know, you have to think logically and reasonably. This guy is literally on a, he's on a chariot just riding around. Do you expect me to believe that they don't have any sort of, of, of hydration, any sort of drinks or anything like that, any sort of water on the chariot? Of course they do. You have to, and this is not ridiculous to say this, you have to stop and think about this for a moment. He wouldn't need to look at a body of water to say, here, now we have the opportunity now that this is here. If the method of baptism was sprinkling or, you know, a fusion, which is pouring. They, he, could have, they didn't, he wouldn't have to point that out. He's saying, now we have the opportunity. Why? Because there's a body of water there. Water there. Look further. It says this. And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Verse 38, And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now notice, in order to baptize him, it necessitated that they both would be standing in the water. They were both standing in the water. Why? Because they needed to have, at the moment of baptism, they needed, he needed to have, Philip that is, at his exposure, enough water available right there where they are located to put him under the water. That's why they went down into the water. Again, sprinkling or effusion, if you want to say asper, uh, aspersion or effusion, both of those he could have just walked up to. Let's say, oh, they didn't have water in the chariot. Well, then in that case, they could have just walked up just to the shore of the water. They wouldn't have needed to go down into the water. Do you expect me to believe that they walked both of them down into the water knee deep and he's like, you're baptized. It's ridiculous. It doesn't make sense. The only way that it makes sense is that they went down into the water in order to immerse him. So over and over again, people are in the water. He's choosing out much water. He notices a body of water. You know, we see him coming up out of the water. Look further at what it says now. Went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. Look at verse 39. And when they were come up out of the water. So notice they went down into the water. You can't misunderstand this. They came up out of the water. It's very clear that baptism is something that is immersion. You don't need to understand even the Greek word. You don't have to go back to the Greek. It's important to know that it is a transliterated word. You should know your language even that you speak. You should be interested in wisdom and you, don't, you shouldn't just be happy being you know, a, a fool and not knowing things in your life. You need to know things, right? Uh, we're taught that in the book of Proverbs. Now, the second thing that I want to focus on quickly is believer's baptism. Believer's baptism, right? We believe and stand for strongly at Value Baptist Church. Believer's baptism. What does that mean? That baptism is only for believers. What does that mean? It means that once a person puts their faith in Christ, then they can be baptized. It is, it is believer's baptism. Baptism takes place after salvation. We'll see here in Acts chapter number 8, 
We see that exactly. He asked the question in verse number 37, and Philip said, oh, I'm sorry, verse number 36, and as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. Now look at this. This is important. This is in your Bible for a reason. What doth hinder me to be baptized? What did he just ask? What is stopping me from being baptized right now? See, here's water. I'm standing here. What needs to happen before I'm baptized? That's what he's asking. And then he says in verse number 37, And Philip said, If, this is conditional, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. So what needs to take place before you are baptized? You have to believe. You have to put your faith in Christ. If you don't put your faith in Christ, you cannot be baptized. If anyone... now. According to Philip's response here, if, if this man would have been baptized right then before he would have put his faith in him, would his, it, would his baptism have been valid? Would it have been, you know, you know, authentic? It would not have. He would not have had a valid baptism because there is a requirement before you are baptized. You have to believe. Therefore, if anyone is baptized before they believe, Their baptism is invalid. It is not authentic. It is not a valid baptism. Uh, Acts chapter number 19, I'll read it to you. Here's another proof of that. Acts chapter number 19, verse number 1 says this, And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples. He said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? So he's inquiring, you know, he's suspicious now. He's inquiring more deeply. And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him, which should come after him. That is on Christ Jesus. So the whole fact that he's preaching this to them now shows that they hadn't put their faith in Christ Jesus. And the whole message that John had preached, they did not receive and they did not understand. And then it even tells you so in verse number 5. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So notice now, once they had received the message, and they misunderstood obviously what John was preaching. Maybe he wasn't closely, he had so many people, he wasn't closely checking every person to make sure that they were saved before he was baptizing. But these people obviously slipped through the, the cracks. Uh, they, you know, that's what took place. And they were not, they had not put their faith in Christ. They didn't even know the message of John the Baptist. They didn't even know what you know, John the Baptist was preaching, and it's, that's why it says when they heard this. So they received that, they believed it, then they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I don't have this in my sermon, and I wasn't planning on touching on this, but I can make a quick statement. You know, we here at Valiant Baptist Church, we baptize in the name of the Lord Jesus, and that's what we believe is the biblical method of baptizing. We baptize someone in the name of the Lord Jesus, just as the Apostle Paul did there. Um, So you must first believe and then be baptized. If you were baptized prior to that, here's an example of someone that did so. And what had to happen again? They were re-baptized. They were baptized again. That's actually where Baptists get their name. Uh, It comes from the name Anabaptist, which means re-baptized. Uh, you could go through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16 verse 30 is, is a good verse where you know, it shows the pattern. It establishes the pattern of you first believe, then you are baptized. You believe, then you are baptized. You have to first believe. I want to give you an, an Old Testament example of uh, you know, quote-unquote baptism. Go to 2 Kings chapter number 5. 2 Kings chapter number 5. <clears throat> 2 Kings chapter number 5, and I believe that this is just a a picture of water baptism. And water baptism is also just a picture as well, and I'm going to get into that. This This is a picture of the practice, more specifically the practice of water baptism that takes place in the New Testament. You know, this is one of the ordinances of the Christian church in the New Testament. And we have, I believe, a picture of that here in 2 Kings chapter number 5. 
Verse number one, it introduces the character. It says, Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid. And she waited on Naaman's wife, and she said unto her mistress, Would God my Lord were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. Leprosy is a, a picture of sin, of course, in the Bible. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is coming to thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass when the king of Israel had read the letter that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man does send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, had heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth, and went away, and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me, and stand, and call on the name of the Lord his God, and strike his hand over the place, and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father... If the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather then would he saith to thee, Wash and be clean. Then went he down and dipped himself seven times in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So this is in the Old Testament an example of what is, I believe, to be a picture of New Testament water baptism. And what do we see him doing? dipping himself in the water. The exact definition of the word baptizo or of baptism is to dip. Now, does water baptism make us clean? No, it does not. As far as our soul, because that is a picture of leprosy, which is sin, right? Being cleansed and him being saved. But what is water baptism a picture of? It is a picture of salvation. So what is going on here is this is a picture of something in the New Testament, which is a picture. And ultimately here what you have too is you have it being taught and understood that the water is not what's cleansing him in the first place because he could have went to any uh, you know, uh, uh, river. You notice that? But specifically he says, hey, you better go to Jordan, right? And you could say maybe that picture is the water of life. He, it's a picture of him receiving righteousness, of becoming clean, right? He's washed by the water. That could be the word of life. The word of life is referred to as water. But here's, a, here's a, an Old Testament example, and this is clearly a picture of New Testament baptism. He goes to water. He stands in water. Here he goes to Jordan, specifically where John baptizes in Matthew chapter number 3, and he dips himself in the water. It's not sprinkling. It's not pouring. He dips himself under the water, right? I want you to go now to 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. Now, I, I told you that this was going to be... Actually, you go back to Matthew 3. I'll read. I got 1 Corinthians 10 here. I wanted this to be comprehensive. Anything related to baptism, I want to make sure that you understand it. I want you to make sure that you know that it's in, that it's under, that it's dip. The method, when to be baptized. I'm putting my emphasis on water baptism right now. We're going to shift gears in just a minute. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, here is the only other mention. Well, there's one other picture. Here's the second mention. There is a third, and I'll get to that in a moment. The second mention of water baptism in the Old Testament. So we could consider 2 Kings 5 a type of water baptism. It's not actually the practice of what we know as baptism. But he was immersed, and it's meant to be a picture here in 2 Kings uh, 5. But there's also another time, and, uh, and this is with Moses, and this is uh, referenced in 1 Corinthians 10. It says this, 1 Corinthians 10.1, Moreover, brethren, I would, not I would not that you should be ignorant, how that all our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed 
through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now this is obviously symbolic, isn't it? But I want you to notice the symbolism because there, even though it's symbolic, there has to be similarities, right? If baptism was by sprinkling, this picture would make no sense. If baptism was by pouring, this symbolism would make no sense. Notice how they were baptized. They went, what? Through the sea. Not only that, they were baptized, it says, unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Do you know how you're baptized? By going into the water and then coming up out of the water. Why is this picture, why is this symbolism important? It, and, and the Bible is so deep, you can just pick apart so many different uh, um, you know, pictures and analogies out of this. What happened before they went through the sea? It's talking about the Red Sea. What took place before that? They put the blood on the doorpost. What does that picture? Salvation. First they were saved. Then once they're saved, what takes place? Then they go through the sea. Then they're baptized. Then they get out into the wilderness and guess what happens then? Now he's, they're given the commandments. Now you need to start serving God. Prior to that, they weren't given the commandments because it wouldn't have helped them any. Right? Uh, you know, the commandments are only there just to show you that you're a sinner. But then you start actually keeping the commandments. You can earn rewards and it can benefit you. So you can see a lot of pictures here, but Notice there that they were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Another thing that you can purge from this is that they were baptized unto Moses. Remember, uh, uh, Paul said, unto what were you then baptized? He said, unto John's baptism. You must have an ordained minister to baptize you. I strongly believe that. There's not an example in the Bible of anyone ever being baptized without an ordained, uh, uh, ordained minister. Ever. You can't think of one. You can spend all day. I've searched it. I've looked at it. And all of these house church people, this is the type of crap that they hate because they just want to be able to have this authority that God gave specifically to the local New Testament church. They just want to take it and usurp this authority. Philip was ordained. He was a deacon. Every single example, Paul was ordained. Notice here they were baptized unto Moses. He was an ordained leader within the church. John was sent by the church, by God. He was baptizing people. He was sent by the Lord every time. You must have an ordained minister in order to be baptized. It's supposed to take place by the church, and then you are baptized into the church. That's what it tells us in Acts chapter number 2. That's the purpose of being baptized. So you're in Matthew chapter number 3. I've pretty much exhausted everything with water, baptism, a lot of that stuff you're already familiar with. And I'm going to spend some time now in the remaining portion of the sermon on the other two baptisms. And I want to, I want to articulate or exposit Matthew chapter number 3 to you. And some people will misunderstand this and I want to explain the differences here and what is being spoken of. So right here we have the plural baptisms. We have water baptism. That's the baptism that John is administering. Then we have the baptism that's going to be coming from Jesus, right? And he says, uh, you, know, uh, you know, but he that cometh after me, verse number 11, is mightier than I, speaking of Jesus, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. These are three independent, distinct baptisms. Water baptism, which John is, is administering right now. Jesus, of course, also administers this, not directly. He has his apostles doing it. But then also there's two things that only Jesus is going to do. And what are they? The baptism of the Holy Ghost and, I want you to notice this, and I'm going to show this to you, the baptism of fire. These are distinct. They are not the same thing. And there's confusion about this where people think that they are the same thing. And I'm going to show to you that they are not. Now, I want you to go to Acts chapter number 1, verse number 5. We actually are told about the fulfillment of the Holy Ghost baptism in Acts chapter number 1. And, uh, and I'm going to point out where people's confusion further comes from in Acts chapter number 1. The book of Acts, Acts chapter number 1. Whoops. Acts chapter number 1. I want you to look with me at verse number Five. So this is a, a, a quotation here. <clears throat> We're just going to pick up right here in verse 5. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Saying not too long after that. That is actually going to be fulfilled, right? Now notice this time, when he quotes it, what does he say? Does he say you'll be baptized with the Holy Ghost and with fire not many days hence? What does he say? You'll be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many, day hence, not many days hence. So notice that only that portion is going to be fulfilled and it's going to be fulfilled upon the apostles or the disciples. Look at verse 6. When they 
therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his power, but ye shall, watch this, receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Notice again, Holy Ghost is what's repeated, not the portion about fire. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, they are told to go back to Jerusalem, and that's where they go and they wait, right? They go back and they wait for the power to be sent, the power to come upon them. Well, that happens in Acts chapter number 2. I want you to skip to Acts chapter 2, look at verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a, a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. This is, of course, the Holy Spirit. Verse number 3. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. Fire, excuse me. And it sat upon each of them. Verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this is the fulfillment of the Holy Ghost being poured out upon them and them being baptized with the Holy Ghost. Now what does the word baptized mean? Immerse. It means to be immersed. Now, there are two types of receiving of the Holy Ghost. One is the indwelling of the Holy Ghost. That, is, that takes place when we get saved, right? When a person gets saved, they receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This didn't happen in the Old Testament. But there's another type of receiving of the Holy Ghost. And that is the pouring out of the Holy Ghost, which is taking place here. It is being filled with the Holy Ghost. It's also referred to that. And it is also called the Holy Ghost coming upon you. This is an immersion of the Holy Ghost. It's, it's, it's having the Holy Ghost, if you will, think of it this way. You know, uh, being immersed is being, it being around, being in, being everywhere, right? That's why this is a reference to having great power. Because it is a much higher level of receiving of the Holy Ghost. And every time that this happens, when the Holy Ghost comes upon someone, you know, they are able to do great miracles. It's not just having the Holy Ghost within them. It is being filled with it. It's all over you. It's everywhere. It's just, it's a baptism of the Holy Ghost. So in this case, they're given the power of God, the power of the Holy Ghost, in a much higher or greater capacity, a much higher level. That's why they would refer to this as the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Now, in uh, Acts chapter number 2, we clearly saw, comparing Acts 1 Acts 2, that this is the fulfillment of what took place in, um, uh, of what was quoted by John the Baptist, right? But furthermore here, the confusion comes from verse number 3. And I'm going to explain that to you real quickly and I'm going to tell you, you know, something that somebody had told me and I hope nobody in here thinks this because I think it's ridiculous. Verse number 3, it says this, And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. Now, <clears throat> I've heard you know, uh, people interpret this passage when it says, And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. That as if they actually saw like a cloven tongue. And I do not believe that that's what this is saying at all. I think that's crazy. That the, a cloven tongue is like a split tongue. Like, like, like a human, uh, uh, the human organ. So the room is filled with smoke and then the human organ of like the tongue is like, it's just coming down and like dropping down. It's like a split tongue. And it's, you know, it's, Basically, the, the way that this was described for me uh, was that there was like fire all around it and this tongue like comes down and it like sits upon each of them like it just comes down and like, like basically because it's spiritual. Jonathan Shelley said this and it goes into, his, into their mouth and then they, they receive the, you know, the Holy Ghost and they're baptized with fire. And he was also trying to purport that Matthew 3 was teaching you know, that this is the baptism of the Holy Ghost and of fire. Okay, that's not what this is saying. When it says appeared unto them, it's not saying that they saw it. Now, it can be worded that way where it means that something appears to someone that they saw it. But also you could say that something appears unto you that you received it. Like, you know, you could, we wouldn't speak this way because we don't use Elizabeth in English. But if someone was skilled at something, you could ask them, you know, when that skill appeared unto them. Basically, when did they receive it? You know, I woke up and it appeared unto me. You know, you could say that that is when you received it and when you were, we don't speak that way, it would be strange, but that is what this is saying. When it says that, that the cloven tongues appeared unto them, it's saying that they were given to them. They received it. Cloven tongue is not talking about the human organ being split. 
What are they able to do? In other languages, and how many? Multiple. Cloven means divided. They're speaking in multiple languages or diverse languages. That's what it means. Cloven tongues is the fact that they're all speaking in different language. Cloven means different or distinct, right? It's saying they're speaking in different languages. And notice it also says like as a fire. It's not literal fire. It's like as a fire, right? So there when it says... And there appeared unto them cloven tongues. It's talking about like distinct tongues, different tongues. They're all speaking different tongues. And then it repeats it. And it says, and it sat, look at this, upon each of them. What does it mean it sat upon them? Oh, the human you know, tongue is like on their head. That's stupid when you try to actually apply this. It's saying that they received it. Sat upon is, is interpreting what it means when it says appeared unto them. What does it mean when something sat upon them? Now, we wouldn't word it this way today either. But it's like an ability or a skill sat upon them, right? They received it. They, were, they have now received it is what this is saying. And then it says it again in verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Cloven tongues is saying diverse tongues and they received the ability to you know, speak you know, if, if you interpret it this way, this is so outside of character of the Bible and visions in, in, in just a crazy way. There's nothing that takes place so bizarre and weird as a tongue on fire. And it's like a split tongue that like lowers down and then they, it sits upon their head and then they receive it. And I'm going to show you very clearly from Matthew chapter number 3 that when it says Holy Ghost and a fire, that those are two distinct things and that it is not referring to this. Now, number one... What did Jesus say was going to be fulfilled in just a few days? And they went and waited for it, and it was the promise of the Spirit. What did He say was going to be fulfilled? The receiving of or the baptism of the Holy Ghost and of fire? Is that what He said? No, He said the, the baptism of the Holy Ghost. So notice that that is the only thing, according to Jesus, that is fulfilled here. Go back to Matthew chapter number 3. Now, I want you to notice how important context is. And this is why I said in the beginning of the sermon that I'm going to you know, help you understand the methods of interpretation. Matthew chapter number 3. Matthew chapter number 3. Look at verse, look at verse 6 first. Let's get context. 5 and 6. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan. So how many people are here? Many. Numerous, right? A ton of people. A lot of different people. And were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. So are there good, godly people here that are being baptized too, that are getting saved and also getting their, their souls right with God in the sense of their sins maybe that they had committed after they were saved? Yeah. But also look in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So who else is there? Bad people are there. Wicked people are there. The Pharisees who crucified Jesus, right? So there's a mixed group here, isn't there? Right? There's the godly, there's the saved, there's the unsaved. And those that hate the Lord and are referred to as being devils, right? Sons of Satan. Look at verse 8 now. <clears throat> Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Now verse 10 we're going to skip for just a moment. But that is also where he is speaking to the Pharisees. Look at verse 11 again. This is the verse that we're focusing on, the verse that's in question. I indeed <clears throat> baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. <clears throat> Excuse me. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and of fire. Now who is John speaking to? He's got a big group here, doesn't he? Now, is he saying he's going to baptize the Pharisees with the Holy Ghost? <clears throat> he's not, is he? <clears throat> now, we know that that was fulfilled. Goodness sakes, I'm like losing my voice. In Acts 1, the Holy Ghost, the baptism of the Holy Ghost, right? But what does he mean by fire, right? So he's speaking, we know, to save people that that does apply to who are going to receive the Holy Ghost. But then he's also speaking to a group that are <clears throat> going to be baptized by fire. Look at the verse just prior to it. Look at verse 9. Or, I'm sorry, verse 10. And now also <clears throat> the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down, look at this, and cast into the fire. Notice that reference to fire. <clears throat> I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he that cometh after me 
is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now, furthermore, I want you to look at verse 12 and verse 12 specifically. Whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor <clears throat> and gather his wheat into the garner. Now, what is the wheat that he's gathering into the garner? That's the saved. And what do they receive? The Holy Ghost. Then look at what he says next. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So he just interpreted for you verse number 11. So he said, we're going to gather into the, into the uh, uh, storage. What does he refer to? Garner? Gather his wheat into the garner. That's the save. That's those that are going to receive the Holy Ghost, right? But then he's going to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So he interprets what he had just said for you in verse number 11, how he's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And further proof of this is, as I already pointed out, when the, uh, uh, the fulfillment of being baptized with the Holy Ghost is quoted, it only quotes the portion about being baptized with the Holy Ghost. It doesn't quote the part about being baptized with fire. The cloven tongues like as a fire has nothing to do with being baptized with fire. Now, when they were baptized with the Holy Ghost, were they literally baptized with the Holy Ghost or was it like it? They were literally, weren't they? That If you were to try to use that fire uh, um, picture there of, of, and, and, and try to say that that was also fulfilled in Acts chapter number 2, that would have been like as a fire. It wasn't fire that they were baptized with. It was like as a fire. So notice the inconsistency here. If you were to try to say, oh yeah, the Holy Ghost baptism, that was literal. But, you know, the fire baptism, that was just like as a fire when they received the cloven tongues like as a fire. It's, it doesn't make any sense. When it says like as a fire, <clears throat> it's referring to the fact of they were able to speak. You know, the Word of God is referred to as being like fire many times. The people being like wood, it's just power. That's what it's saying. They were given a great strong tongue that they were able to speak with. This, this is very important to know that context interprets things. He's speaking to a crowd of different people. He's speaking to saved people and unsaved people. He's speaking to people that are going to receive the Holy Ghost and people that are going to receive fire. You know what he's saying? He stands up before the whole group and he tells them, you know, I'm baptizing with water, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I'm not worthy to stoop down and lose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. This whole group he's speaking to. And that doesn't mean that that whole statement applies to one person or another. It, he's speaking to everyone. And we may not word things this exact way today, but that's how he is talking. He then interprets it. That's why context is important. Afterwards, in the following verse, he says, Whose fan is in his hand, and he shall throughly purge his floor, and he'll gather his wheat into the garner, and then he'll, he'll take the chaff and burn it with unquenchable Fire. Now, what does it mean to be baptized? It means to be immersed. It means to be immersed. Water baptism is an immersion. The Holy Ghost, when that takes place, it's not just the receiving of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That was not the fulfillment of the baptism of the Holy Ghost. It was when the Holy Ghost was, you know, uh, 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 they were basically filled, surrounded. It was everywhere. They had it to a, a greater capacity. The Holy Spirit, they were immersed in the Holy Spirit, right? There was a much greater capability of the Holy Ghost, right? Now, what does it mean when they, He's going to baptize them with fire? What does that mean they're going to be, when, they, when, they, when they're baptized with fire, what does it mean? They're going to be what? They're going to be in fire. They're going to be immersed in fire. I want to look at that now. <clears throat> Go to uh, Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Now, if you just think of th this, let's think of hell. Just hell itself first. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 22 tells us this. For a fire is kindled in mine anger and shall burn unto the lowest hell and shall consume the earth with her increase. And then it says this, and set on fire the foundations of the mountain. So, hell is in the center of the earth. But you know what it's burning all the way to? It's burning all the way to the foundations of the earth. Now, if a person goes to hell, they're going to be completely and totally and 100% immersed in fire. They're not, it's not just burning under their waist. It's not just burning in some places and not in others, right? It's, if you are in the center of the earth, it is burning unto all the way to the foundations of the earth. Completely and 100% to the foundation of the earth. You are inside of fire. It's around you. It's like when the children of Israel went through the sea, right? It is around them. It's, you're in it. 
It's you're immersed in fire. <clears throat> that's what Jesus, that's what John means when he says he's going to baptize and he's speaking to some, right? In fire, when he references that. Now, Matthew chapter number 13, <clears throat> I'll turn there myself. <clears throat> Matthew chapter number 13, look at verse number 24. This is a parable that Jesus tells. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants, the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? <clears throat> but he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. Now, of course, we see the parallel with Matthew 3 already because Matthew 3 is actually a prophecy of the end of the world. I want you to look further at uh, verse 36 now. This is where it's interpreted. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. <clears throat> As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. Now this is a matching parallel. It's extremely strong parallel with Matthew chapter number 3. And I want you to notice that you have the children of the kingdom, the children of the wicked one. That is those that were being baptized and were saved at John's baptism and also the Pharisees. Those that are being baptized and being saved, those people are those that receive the Holy Ghost. Those are those that are going to go to heaven one day, right? These are saved, sealed believers, right? Then also we have the wicked ones. We have uh, those that rejected John's uh, counsel against them, rejected the fact that they needed to repent and put their faith in Christ. They are of the wicked one. And what's going to take place with them? They are going to be gathered together and they are going to be thrown where? I want you to notice what it says. In the fire. Now when you burn up uh, tares or you burn up you know, weeds or you know, branches, anything, how do you burn it up? What do you do? Is it just a small fire? No, it's immersed. That's how fire operates. It's going to spread ultimately anyways. It's immersed. That's why it's worded. It says there, As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. Now that's just the, that is the uh, immediate application if we were to try to liken that unto hell. That's modern day. We know the fire, as I said, you could still make the application. The fire goes all the way to the foundations, right? So they, the people that are in hell today, they are immersed in fire. They are baptized in fire. That means immersed in fire. That's what that means. You need to understand the definition of that word. They're fully you know, uh, uh, immersed and it's around them. They're surrounded. They are in fire. That's why it says here, in fire. We have a picture in the Old Testament of the three Hebrew children you know, going to, uh, you know, being saved from hell, right? In this picture. And the furnace pictures fire. What, is, what goes on in that case? <clears throat> They're thrown into the furnace. Now, are they just, is there a little bit of fire there? Or are they immersed in fire? immersed, fully surrounding them, right? Oftentimes, what do you do when you have a furnace? You shut the door even, right? And it's just the whole furnace is filled with fire. But furthermore, I want you to notice that this is actually a prophecy of the end of the world. The end of the world. And what happens with hell in the end of the world? Hell is taken and thrown where? Into the lake of fire. Now, notice that it's a lake of fire, just like what? Maybe a river? Maybe like Jordan River? Revelation 19.20 says, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. You know what's happening? That is the fulfillment there of that particular uh, parable, where they are being immersed 
in fire. Revelation 20.10 says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. I'm going to skip down to verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast, notice over and over again, into the lake of fire. This is the fulfillment of those that are baptized, the children of the wicked, immersed, if you will, in fire. This is them being baptized in fire. So you have to think about it. That's a pretty uh, frightening thought when you actually try to picture the lake of fire. Just billions upon billions and billions of people in a lake of fire, immersed in fire, just completely covered in fire. It's surrounding them. It's all around them. I mean, that is a terrible, terrible, frightening, horrifying thought. And that's why Jesus will often, in, in, in uh, parables too, he, re he refers to it in the New Testament as being like a furnace of fire. A furnace is something, if something is put into a furnace, it's not just a little bit being burnt. It is immersed. It is fully, it's totally around you. Hell is not just like a little bit of flames. You can kind of see through them. You are immersed in hell. But furthermore, the lake of fire, it is a lake. It's like if you picture a body of water, and just like how people are baptized into that water, these people are going to be baptized in the lake of fire. They're going to be immersed. These people are going to be fully put into. That's why they're into the lake of fire. That's a terrifying thought. Right. People especially think about maybe people that say, hey, I'm claustrophobic. Well, you got a lot, you're going to have a big problem with hell and with specifically the lake of fire because you're going to be baptized into the lake of fire. I want you to go now to uh, Luke chapter number 12, verse number 50. Luke chapter number 12, verse number 50. So except for if we were to exclude for just a moment, we just have just a few minutes left here and this is the conclusion. Except for the fire baptism, if we were to look at all the other, you know, positive, the, the spiritual baptism, right, of the Holy Ghost. And then of course we have the baptism of uh, water, right? These are meant to represent something. These are meant to picture something. And what it represents is the death, burial, and resurrection. It represents the gospel. When Naaman was baptized in you know, the, the river of Jordan, that was a representation of the gospel. It was the gospel that cleansed him. It was the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection that was supposed to be picturing his you know, salvation, if you will, the salvation of his soul. Water baptism can't save anyone. Water baptism does not save only the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and putting your faith in Jesus. That is what saves you. So Luke chapter number 12, verse number 50 is a very interesting verse. I want you to see what Jesus says here. He says this, But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straightened till it be accomplished. Now, <clears throat> Luke chapter number 12, Jesus had already been, what? Water baptized. Already at this point. But notice what he says. I have a baptism to be baptized with. Right? I have a baptism to be baptized with. Now, <clears throat> the Bible tells us in two different places, I'm going to read these to you, that baptism, our water baptism, is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Romans chapter number 6 verse number 4 says this, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. Now I want you to notice we're buried into. We're buried with him by baptism into death. By what? Immersion. That's what that means. That's what the word means. We are buried with him by immersion or by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Water baptism is a picture of the resurrection. When a person is standing up out of the water, that's the old man. That is a picture of Jesus dying on the cross for the old man, taking our sins upon him, right? That's him on the cross. Then he's taken and he's dunked or immersed under the water. That is a picture of Jesus being buried. And when he was buried, where was he buried? This is what it ultimately pictures. 
a tomb. His body was taken and put into a tomb. He was fully under, if you will, the earth. He was in the earth on all sides. He was surrounded. This is ultimately what baptism pictures in the first place. His burial. What does it mean to be buried? It means for the earth to be surrounding you everywhere. You are immersed by the earth. You're inside of the earth. That's why it uses the language right there, into death. You are in it. That's why we, you know, if you look at, this is the strongest point against, you know, sprinkling, against, uh, you know, pouring, right? What's the purpose of baptism? What does it represent in the first place? It represents the death, burial, and resurrection. Now, explain to me how sprinkling can represent the death, burial, and resurrection. It cannot. It's not possible. Explain to me, explain to me how effusion or how pouring represents the death, burial, and resurrection. It does not. It's silly. It's stupid. It's crazy. It, you know, the word baptism means immerse. That's what it means. It means immersion. It means to be immersed. It means to be dipped or dunked under. It needs to be put inside of. So when we look at Romans 6.4, it gives us that definition even so, even so here. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism. There needs to be a burial in baptism. And what Jesus was talking about when he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, you know what he was talking about? His death, burial, and resurrection. When Jesus was baptized, his water baptism, after that fact, he still said, I have a baptism to be baptized with. You know what it was? His burial. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. The purpose of baptism is to represent the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the whole entire purpose. That's what Naaman pictured. That's what it pictured when the children of Israel went through the sea. That was the, the picture that took place there. The water was around them, right? That was a picture of them being buried, right? You know, you have them being saved prior to that. Right? In, in the sense of the, the, the Christian life, if you look at the whole Christian life in the big picture, you have them being saved prior to that. But if you just home in just on the fact of them being baptized, you have the old man and then, and then the old man being buried and then them coming out as the new man on the other side. That is the resurrection. So them, a person that is baptized when they are put under the water, when they come up out of the water, that is the new man. That is them being raised from the dead. That is a picture of Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. Colossians chapter number 2 verse number 12 says this, buried with him in baptism. Notice again, what does it mean to be baptized? Buried. It means to be immersed, right? It means to be put under. That is what immersed means, to be put under and in. Wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. The only other picture in the Old Testament of baptism is uh, it refer in 1 Peter chapter number 3, verse number 20, it talks about how you know Noah's Ark was a picture of baptism. But specifically, it only pictured one thing: the resurrection. It only the Noah's Ark was not meant to picture the first other parts. Of the of baptism, it pictures. It says it tells you very clearly the like figure whereunto baptism baptism doth, doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. And it says by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What the ark represented was you know Jesus being raised from the dead, him being above the water, out of the water, coming up out of the dead. Obviously, the water was sea at that point. You make many applications to that, the dragon in the sea and things like that. It's death and him overcoming death at that moment. But we look at all the different baptisms in the Bible. We have the water baptism, we have the Holy Ghost baptism, and we have the fire baptism. And what does the word baptism mean? It means to be immersed. And the Holy Ghost and fire baptism was not fulfilled in uh, Acts chapter number 2. It was not fulfilled in Acts chapter number 2. You can see that by the context. You can see that by the language that's used in Acts 1 and Acts 2. And uh, also it's quoted too. I think I have it on here. Acts chapter number 11. Let me quote that to you. Read that quote to you. <clears throat> Acts chapter number 11 verse 15. It says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. So notice again, when it's quoted, the with fire part is left out. It's just the Holy Ghost. He tells you that that was fulfilled as it did in us in the beginning, that that was fulfilled in Acts chapter number 2, just like Jesus said it's going to be 
you know, fulfilled, not many days hence. Fire's not mentioned. You know, when it says, and that's an important point. Let me, that's probably one of the most important points from the sermon. Because I'm assuming, and you know, you probably learned some things, but it's probably more of a basic sermon. It's meant to be. And that shows that, hey, you're not, you don't need to go back and lay the foundation again. And that's, that's good. I just need to make sure that I am accountable and I do my job with the doctrine of baptisms and all things that are in that list. I want to make sure everybody understands those things firmly. But here's one thing that's real important and that you could walk away with this. That statement in Matthew chapter number 3 could be confusing to you. Because he's speaking to everyone. He says, I indeed baptize you with water. Now that's plural. You, the word you is plural. He's speaking to a group of people. I indeed baptize you with water under repentance. But he that cometh after me, who's mightier than I, you know, is mightier than I, whose shoe latchet I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I didn't quote it from Matthew 3. I quoted it from Luke. Uh, but then he says, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now you could see someone's misunderstanding like that is speaking to the same person. But it's not. That's you trying to project how we speak today upon the scriptures, upon their language at that time. It's not speaking. It's speaking to a group of people. That's why it gave you the context. Context is important. Number one, context is very important. And statements can be made in general ways to speak unto an entire group of people. And part of what I say may only relate to some people, while part relate, the other part relates to someone else. That is important to understand, like in the case of maybe uh, 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 you know, growing in knowledge in the book of Hebrews, where he's speaking in a general way to people that may be saved, may not be saved. You know, this is why it's important to understand the way that the Bible is written and the language that is used. This is a very important tip on context. And then also I hope that everyone has a firm, uh, uh, just comprehensive understanding of the doctrine of baptisms. The word, the word baptism means to be immersed. There are three baptisms, very quickly, water, Holy Ghost, and fire. The water baptism is obviously meant to picture the death, burial, and resurrection. The Holy Ghost baptism is, you know, when the Holy Ghost is poured out. And people are able to do great wonders and signs, miracles, and great works by the power of God. And the baptism of fire is when the, 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 uh, the chaff is taken and it's burned. It's when the tares are bundled together and they're thrown into the fire. Those that go to the lake of hell, they are immersed in fire. They are you know, uh, uh, you know, covered and all and around in fire. So this is, this is very basic. We need to understand basic things, like what the word baptism means. Very simple, basic thing. So uh, let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you, dear Lord, for your word. We thank you, dear God, for the simplicity of it. We thank you for the basic things, dear Lord, that we, we can lay the foundation. We don't have to uh, you know, build upon it uh, or go back and tear it up because we're confused about things. You know, we, 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 uh, we're very thankful that the Word of God is easily discernible and that we can just study and, and take our time and be diligent and we can understand the Word of God. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that helps us, dear Lord. And uh, we ask you.